Good morning, and greetings from your brothers and sisters at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a joy for me to be back, always be back at Harvest. I remember so well, uh, to me, when I think of Harvest OPC in Grand Rapids, I see a gymnasium with about 100 people and little children running everywhere, and you've all grown up, but I remember you as a little boy, as a little girl, and I have a great affection for this church. I've preached here many times. I feel kind of bad. I, I somewhat insinuate myself upon your pastor. I, I'm in town for our annual Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. If you've been at that conference, it's good to see you today. Uh, at First Byron Center Christian Reformed. And uh, sometimes I preach the morning services then, sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I, I kind of drop a hint to Dale. You know, Dale, I'm in town, and I think he's, he's sorry for me. So he, he lets me preach, but it's a blessing to me uh, to see God's work. I tell you what's it's thrilling to me, and I'll talk about this no doubt in the sermon a little bit, uh, is the zeal for the Lord's work, planting churches and uh, severing relationships that uh, Christ's work, his gospel would be, would be spread. It's a thrill to see. Well, I, uh, I am an expository preacher, and I tend to do long series. I just did three and a half years in the book of Genesis, and if this had been two months ago, I would, my mind and heart would still be in Genesis, and I would be preaching out of Genesis, but now I've started 1 John. And so uh, I'm, uh, I've done five sermons, and I'm on verse 4. There's a lot in 1 John. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 1 John 1 to 4, but then I'm going to preach really a statement that is made in verse 3. So listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how mighty it is, because it conveys your life and power. And so we pray that you would attend the preaching of your word today with the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for any who's here who does not know Jesus in a saving way, that they would, by your work, through your word, that their hearts would be open to believe and to enter into this salvation. But Father, for those of us here, so many of us who are your people, Oh, Father, would we see that great communion with you that you hold open to us, in which we will have life and joy. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The friendship between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel is one of the most moving friendships in all the Bible. If you're not familiar with the story of David and Jonathan, I have a son named Jonathan for a reason. I think Jonathan's one of the more lovely figures in all of Scripture, and that friendship they had, brother to brother, is so moving. 1 Samuel 18, 1 says, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And they shared over many trials and years in their faithfulness to one another. They shared a warmth of friendship that encouraged them. And yet... For all the beauty of that friendship, I believe the Puritan scholar John Owen was right when he said that their love was nothing compared to the fellowship and the love that is between God and his people. This fellowship of love is far more wonderful. Those who enjoy this communion are gloriously united to God through Christ and share in all the glorious and excellent fruits of that communion. Well, the Apostle John shared Owen's view, and the, the portion of that passage I read that I want to focus on today is his statement in verse 3, <clears throat> indeed, our fellowship or our communion is with the Father 
and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There is a communion between God and his people. Now, Owen points out that when the Apostle John wrote those words, there were not many outward advantages to becoming a Christian. In the Roman Empire, they were starting to become more seriously a persecuted people, but they were widely despised. If you wanted to become contemptuous in the culture of which you are a member, the thing you should do is become a Christian because they were despised in their time. Why would one become a follower of Christ? And Owen answers, notwithstanding all the disadvantages their fellowship lay under from a worldly point of view, yet in truth it was, and they would soon find it to be very honorable, glorious, and desirable. And the reason for that is John's claim here that as Christians we share a communion with the Father and the Son. Now what I want to do today is work out what this means. What does that language actually mean? What is the nature of this fellowship that we as God's people enjoy with God? Well, I want to work this out in three ways. That our communion with God is a personal relationship with God. It is secondly a partaking of God and his life. And thirdly, it is a partnership with God in and through his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's look at those three topics. Now, prior to becoming Christians, our problem was, among other things, that God was a stranger to us. We did not have a relationship with God. And we were, he was alienated from us. This is what sin did. The, the, the guilt of sin meant that God was alienated from us, but the corruption of sin meant that we were alienated from him. And, and you see that in Genesis 3 as soon as Adam commits the first sin and the race falls. There is an estrangement between man and God. I think Genesis 3.8 is one of the most marvelous verses. It says the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now just think of that. There's Adam and Eve prior to their sin, and they live in the Garden of Eden with all of its delights and glories, and the Lord God, we would, I think we would presume the second person in a pre-incarnate form, God is walking among, he's their friend, and he walks and fellowships with them. Walking in the cool of the day, there is God in his garden with his image bearers. And what do they do? They hide from him. They cover themselves with fig leaves, and they hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Genesis 3, 8. Sin estranges mankind from God. And so he is a stranger to our lives. That's why if you're not a Christian, if you're not come to know God through Jesus Christ, you, you may say, oh yes, I believe in God, because frankly, to do otherwise is a philosophical absurdity. So I want to give you credit for that. You're not being absurd. And yet that's as far as you can go. But I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. I am a stranger to God, and God is a stranger to me until I come to God through faith in Jesus. And see, this is what Christ did. He came and he restored our fellowship with God. How did he do that? By removing the barrier of sin. I love the way your pastor just put it. He covers our sin, and then when we lift the cover, the sin's not there anymore. That was, well, that was good. That's going to be repeated in a southern church near you. The, uh, and, uh, the, uh, but that's what Jesus, he washed away our sin. He, he took our guilt upon himself to the cross. But there's more. Through the power of this Holy Spirit, he is remedying the corruption within us. And the effect is that we are restored to fellowship with God. And now through God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Christian knows the God who previously had been a stranger, the God he previously had been avoiding. And now there is an intimate communication between God and man. Uh, like any good relationship, there will be time spent together. There will be a desire to get to know God better by listening to him. We will likewise want to share with God by talking with him. We have a personal relationship with God. Now that's an expression we don't hear much today. I think in Reformed circles, I think in previous generations, that kind of thing was said without any doctrinal content. 
and it was just kind of a, a relativism, but, 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 but we don't want to do it that way, but we want to remember that it is true, it is essentially true. If you are a Christian, you are called into communion with God in a personal relationship with God. Now, that raises a question. How do you fellowship with a God who you can't see? Now, let's say you're at work and you've got a quiet moment and you're uh, during the lunch break and you're, or maybe you're praying or you're opening the word or whatnot. And, uh, and, and a neighbor, when your coworker says, what are you doing? I'm, I'm communing with God. And, and that neighbor would go, uh, you look like you're alone to me. <laughs> I don't see God. How, how do we commune <clears throat> with a God who is not physically present? And the answer is by faith. By faith, we have a personal relationship with a God we know and are getting to know better. Am I on? And that faith, I I keep hitting it and I think I'm messing it up. Uh, That faith, what it does is it answers the great craving of our hearts. You think of St. Augustine in the first chapter of the Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is what faith does. It makes God real to us. And the believer has found God, believes in God, is aware of his presence through faith. Well, let's ask another question. If Christianity, if salvation is a personal relationship to God, although God is not visibly present, how does God speak to me? You talk together in a personal relationship. How does that happen? And the answer is through his word. Now, you're probably, if I'd have said, uh, how does God speak to us? I hope you would all have said, Bible. You know how that that Sunday school class is with kids. Every answer is sin, Bible, Jesus, or God. And the ability to know when to say one of those, each of those, means that they're profound theologians. Uh, (laughs) Bible, you'd say. And yet I wonder if you treat your Bible that way. Do you realize that God is speaking to you through his word? That's what's happening. There is a personal encounter with God. And how does that happen? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word of God is living and active, says Hebrews 4.12. What does that mean? It means that that these writings that were written by human beings, the Apostle John wrote this letter, and yet it was the Holy Spirit of God who was inspiring him, who was moving him, as the biblical language, was carrying him along, so the Spirit wrote it. But, but here's the thing, when you as a believer are reading it, the Spirit now illuminates your mind so that God is speaking to you, not in some relativistic word. Uh, yeah, last night at the conference, someone was telling me about a local seminary where it was being taught that uh, you know, the Bible means something different to everyone. And you can't teach objective meaning from the Bible because every different person in this room hears it differently. I said, isn't it interesting? That professor assumed that you all equally understood what he was saying and that, he communicated, that what he said, his words, had objective meaning to you as he was denying that the Bible has objective meaning to God's people. Now, the Bible is an objective. There's, we, we soundly understand it. It is not true that you can make the Bible say anything. What well, you can try to, but it's not saying that. The Bible has a message. But here's the thing. It is God who speaks to you through your Bible, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so and I, I want to encourage you to think this way. When you are taking time, as I hope you are, to open your Bible and read God's Word, realize that God is speaking to you. That is a meeting with God. You are not just reading a book, but there is a communion with God and his people through his words. And this, of course, is one of the great distinctions between a Christian and a non-Christian, because this is not true for the person who has not been born again, who's not converted. Prior to conversion, the Bible's a dead book. Uh, It held a certain academic interest, maybe, but uh, no one was speaking to us in it. Now, I was converted at age 30 in graduate school, and I remember well trying, you know, there was a, I'd go through phases where I, I, I should be devout. And I, one time I went down to the Barnes and Nobles, and I got a, this, this is about a month before my conversion, I got a Bible, I got a King James Bible, uh, so it wasn't even in my language, uh, but, uh, and I opened, I got nothing against the King James Bible, but, uh, but I remember trying to read it, and, and, and it was boring. 
And it was a dead book to me. I was dead to it, and there was no life in its pages. And then I'm converted through the preaching of God's Word, and I, all I want to do is read the Bible. And it's alive, and I, I'm meeting Jesus in there. But this is what God is doing through His Word. He is fellowshipping with us. How does Jesus put it? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And so like lambs recognize the voice of their shepherd, Christians fellowship with God. We hear his voice in the scriptures. But not only does God talk with us, we also talk with him. And that raises another question. How does a man or woman speak to a God who's not there? What's the answer? Prayer. God speaks to us in his word. We speak to him in prayer. John insists that our fellowship is with the Father. And that includes then an ability to converse with God. Now, our conversation, our relationship with God is not that between two equals. And while there should be a freeness and an intimacy in prayer, when we pray, it's always going to be a meeting with the mighty God. Uh, my children go to the largest homeschool co-op in America. Welcome to South Carolina. And uh, dare I say the Reformed community there is small and in the minority, and most of the kids there come from a very broad, non-denominational, and I think it's fair to say not a very doctrinally deep Bible teaching. And my, my daughter will come back from one of the student gatherings and said, I said, how was your day today? She says, I heard a lot of hey, hey Jesus prayers. Hey Jesus, how you doing? Good to talk to you, Jesus. Okay, thanks, Jesus. Actually, she says, uh, how, here's how you tell the reformed girl in the homeschool co-op. Prayer number one, hey Jesus, how you doing, dude? Prayer number two, hey Jesus, so good to see you. Prayer number three, our Heavenly Father, we come to you through the mediation of your Son, <laughs> and we worship your awesome... We have identified the Reformed girl of the co-op. Uh, it ought to be that case because, you know, it's like, it, when you meet with God, it's like Moses at the burning bush, and there, and, and there is an intimacy and a freeness. There's also the taking off the sandals of our hearts, and we come before an awesome God with reverence. He is the creator. We are the creatures. He is the Lord. We are his people, and yet he himself invites us to an intimacy, a freeness in speaking to him. I, th I think it is good in prayer to compose your thoughts. I recommend if you struggle with prayer, and, and you do, uh, prayer is the highest activity we do. It's the most spiritual thing. It's the hardest for us. Uh, use the Psalms. And I, so in my regular practice, I'll read a paragraph of the Psalm, and then I'll talk to God about it. I'll pray about it. And then I'll read the next paragraph of the psalm. Let, let the psalms guide you. Often we can do that, but we, we are able just to speak freely and intimately with God. Here's how G. Campbell Morgan put it. I can say and do say when alone with God things I dare not say in the hearing of men. Isn't that right? That's what he says. I tell him all my griefs, all my doubts, all my insecurities, all my fears, all my sins. If I have not learned to do so, I have not entered into the true meaning of communion with God. Well, it is essential in our prayers to remember one detail of what John says. Look at verse 3. Our fellowship is with the Father. Now, he could have said our fellowship is with the deity. Our fellowship is with God, but he mentions Father there because there is a quality and how important this is to prayer. There is a quality of a father with his children that is essential to prayer. Now, even the most callous, you have to be a very callous human being not to make time for your children, particularly in need. And a true father delights to see his children. And there's an open access to the children. And, and God is the best of all fathers. And so we are coming to a loving Heavenly Father who wants to hear from us, who wants to bless us. I, I, I've been helped many years, many times by the little comment Peter makes in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In prayer, you are a child of God in Christ who is talking to your Father 
who cares for you. And again, while I think normally we'll want to compose our thoughts, sometimes we really don't do that. And and Romans 8.26 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray for what we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, you may have noticed, so we're still on the first point, salvation is a personal relationship with God. I have no, I've already used two metaphors that are very important for the Christians. We need to think in the way the Bible teaches us. I mentioned that we're sheep, and the Lord is our shepherd, and, and we should nurture our communion with God by thinking of God as a, as a shepherd of, of Christ, and, and we are his sheep, and he leads us, and he cares for us. But the second of these, in fact, I, I don't even want to call it a metaphor. It, it's not a metaphor. It's what we are, that he is our father, and we are his children. And to cultivate the idea that God is the best of fathers, you know, one of the big things in our society is the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of virtue and fatherlessness is a scourge in our country today. And even many of us here were hurt by our earthly fathers because of sin. You know why the sins of earthly fathers hurt so much? So that a a 55-year-old man walks into my office and says, Pastor, my father never loved me, and he's still dealing with that. You know why that that hits so much? Because we were designed for father love. And I want to say to you, especially if you were hurt by the lack of love from your earthly father, that love you have always craved is perfectly available to you through God the Father, through his son. His is the perfect fatherly love. And so we as children, we come to him. My father died uh, 19 years ago. And I was very close to my father. And uh, particularly in the years after he died, I would find myself, many of you had this experience, I, I wanted to tell him something. And something happened, or I wanted to hear his voice, and I'd almost pick up the phone, and, and, and I couldn't call him. And I realized that all along, my my earthly father, who had such a wonderful influence in my life, he was creating a space in my heart that God the Father wanted to fill. And so when I wanted to pick up that phone, I would get on my knees and I would talk to my heavenly father and say, help me to learn to talk to you the way I did to my dad. In fact, and you've been with me all my life. And just as my father loved me and he disciplined me and he challenged me, but he was excited about me. You know, you've been excited about me. And you were there before you knew me, before the worlds were born. You chose me and you knew me. You're my father. And and to think about God as your father. J.I. Packer writes, a Christian is one who has God for his father. But then Packer says this, I think very insightfully. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought that God is his father. Communion with God, experiential Christianity. And I admit that one reason I'm preaching this text, one reason I'm preaching 1 John in my church, is that we need more experiential Christianity. We need communion with God. We don't think that way. We trust in God. We're trying to walk by faith, trying to honor Him. But do we live in communion with God? He is your Father. That space in your heart is for Him to fill. Commune with Him. Make much Take hold of all that the Bible teaches about God as your father. I tell you, a book I would recommend is Children of the Living God by Sinclair Ferguson. What a book it is, exploring all that it means that God is our father and we are his children. But do you realize how fervent is the love of God for you as a Christian? He wants to care for you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to see you grow into maturity in faith. Uh, I I have two sons who are in college right now. I have a daughter who's graduating and two sons. It's been hard. I I have two girls at home. Uh, And so uh, in the reform world, I have a small family. Uh, But uh, uh, as they're growing, it's hard for me when they leave and they go away to college. But I take so much satisfaction in their growth when they're walking in faith, and I want to help them. It's a joy to me because I love them. My wife's the same way. You're this way because to encourage them and to help them. I mean, that's just a picture of God's attitude towards you. He's excited about your life and he wants to bless you. Well, this will, this will help you in your prayers. Come to the Father 
through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now let me give you, this is still under personal relationship, let me give you a third way to think of God. You're, you're a sheep, he's a shepherd, you're his child, he's your father, that's the main one. But the Bible also says that through faith in Christ, we have become God's friends. We are friends of God. Abraham in James 2.23 was called the friend of God. Exodus 33.11 says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now again, that friendship does not decrease the creature-creator distinction. We're not buddies in a, in a non-reverential sense. What it speaks to is the trust and familiarity that God desires to grow in our fellowship with him. Nathaniel Hardy says that by this fellowship, God and a Christian may be said to walk, to talk, to feast, nay, to lodge and dwell together. Now, Jesus described this friendship as a trusted confidence, a trusted confidence, and he says it grows through obedience. Listen to John 15, 14 to 15. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now notice how he put it. A servant, we are servants, but we're the kinds of servants that he's shared himself with. We know he's, he's, he's entered us into his counsel. We know what he's doing. We are his friends. Oh, do you realize what a privilege it is to be the sheep and the children and, yes, the friends of God. John Owen writes, Men are generally esteemed by the company they keep. It is an honor to stand in the presence of princes and kings, even if you're only a servant. What honor, then, have all the saints to stand with boldness in the presence of the Father and there to enjoy his love? Now, you know that the quality of any fellowship depends in large measure on the effort that we put into it. That's true for marriage. You've got to put some effort into it. And so it is with our friendship with God. And so here's a question I want to ask you. Do you make time for him? This is what our generation needs. Our generation needs truth. Amen. We need to be a people of truth. We need to teach the Bible. We need to stand up against error. But our, the kingdom of God is also not a matter of talk, but of power. And our generation needs an experiential Christianity of people who, are, who, who have a personal relationship with God. And, and that's, that's a big part of their life. And they're making time for him. They long to be with his word. They, 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 they have a desire to speak with him in prayer, not only with uh, requests, go ahead and request, but also to unburden their hearts. My friends, if we are not making time for God, we are robbing him and impoverishing ourselves. And for all the wealth that we have, all of our ability to, to do things, I fear that we have a spiritual poverty among our churches today because we are not fellowshipping with God. There is no shortcut to a life of communion with God. How, how urgent it is, perhaps especially for those who are very active in doing the work of the Lord, whether in the church or in the home, that are being busy for God does not keep us from spending time in communion with God. Well, if you said, well, give me one word that describes fellowship. John uses the word koinonia in verse 3, that you may, too, may have fellowship with the Father and his Son. What, what does that mean? Well, the, the, the word I would probably first pick is sharing. What does it mean to have communion with God? Well, it's a personal relationship but it's also a sharing relationship, a sharing. John Owen writes, communion is the mutual sharing of the good things which delight all those in fellowship. Now, we commune with God by sharing our time, our thoughts, our hearts, but here's the good news. God has more than time to share with us. And the second point I want to make, the first is that communion with God is a personal relationship with God. But secondly, it is a partaking of God's life. Communion with God, this koinonia with the Father and the Son, involves us sharing ourselves with God. And it's hard to imagine that we have anything to give him, but he wants, he wants you to give him your heart. 
That's what he wants. He wants you to give you to him. What's he going to give to me? Him. He wants to give himself to me. He wants me to partake of his life. That's why John said in verse 2, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, John's going to, this is a very doctrinal letter. John's going to proclaim doctrines, but that's not how he puts it. What we're proclaiming to you is life, the life of God, and in the proclamation of that is a conveying of the very life of God to have fellowship with the Father and the Son, spending time with the Father, opening our hearts to him in prayer, reading his word is to partake of the life that is in God. Now, our sharing in the life of God begins in regeneration, the new birth that brings us to saving faith in God. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you cannot, you cannot have experience of the life of God unless you've been born again. You've been, you've been given the gift of saving spiritual life. How does that happen? 1 Peter 1.23 says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And so the new birth is when through the preaching of the word or the reading of the word or the witness of the word, but always the word, God supernaturally opens our hearts to believe and we become a new man or woman. We become the new creation. We are born again. And this is the beginning of a life. In, what's happening then is God is sharing the life that is in him with us. And this is what our communion with God means. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I cannot have fellowship with God before I am like him. And in Christ I receive a new life, a new nature. I am born again. I become a new creature. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul's talking about why Christians should not marry non-Christians. And he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And that was true with us. God could not fellowship with us. We would not fellowship with him. But now we become like him. The new birth happens and it enables our communion with God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, and so unable to know God. But then by his mercy, Ephesians 2.5, God made us alive together with Christ. Now that's the beginning of the Christian life. That's the beginning of communion with God. But then it consists, all forward of that, in a partaking of the life that is in God. In our fellowship with God, in our worship, he is sharing with us the good things of his life. I, I was reading in my own devotions a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a little throwaway line, not really, but a little statement in 2 Kings 17, 15, talking about Israel's idolatry. And it makes this statement, it's 2 Kings 17, 15, they went after false idols and became false. You see what he's saying? You begin to take on the nature of what you are worshiping. And that is all the more true of the God who is spirit. When we worship God, when we fellowship him, when we commune with him in the way that I've described, we become like him. Now that's not just a, an imitation, it is that, but it's actually a, a work of his Holy Spirit to communicate to us the good things that are in him. Uh, this is what makes our fellowship with God more and more intimate. We are partaking of his life and love and peace and joy. He is pouring it into our hearts. Now, theologians very helpfully at this point distinguish between the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are attributes of God, descriptions of how God is, that he can pass on to you, and others, because they are essential to deity, he cannot pass on to you. Uh, God is infinite. He is eternal. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is almighty. Now, I don't want to offend you, but these things are never going to be true of you. If no one has told you before, let me break the news to you. You are not God, and you are never going to be God. And there are attributes of God that pertain to the Godhead that are incommunicable. I can never be infinite. There's, there's an end to me, thank the Lord. Uh, and I, I am not omnipresent. I am not omniscient. Uh, but then there are attributes of God that he not only can, but he desires 
to communicate to us. And what are these things? Well, these are things like God's holiness, his goodness, his love, his truth, his faithfulness. You think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and 23, gentleness, self-control, patience, love, all of these things. And so here's what happens. And this is what should be happening in our lives. As you are communing with God in a real personal relationship that's, that's at the center of your life, you will start partaking in him. And he will start communicating to you those things that are true of himself. We will become more blessed in him. We'll become more like him. We will be changing. Isn't it wonderful that we should be changed? I like to say that because you are justified through faith alone in Jesus, in all eternity you will never be more righteous before God than you are right now through faith in Christ. You are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ten million years from now, you will stand before God in that same righteousness. But you, are, you will be more holy than you are now. Thank the Lord, this is not it. There is growth in the Lord. There is change. Are, are you changing? Are you changing? This is the question. Are we experiencing a power so that someone who knows you, maybe in the workplace, a family member, says, you know, I don't really like their religion, I don't like their Christianity because I have bad views about it, but i got to say there is a power at work in this person's life because they are partaking of the things of God. Is that true of your life? It is necessary that it be true. And let's not complain about the culture war and the drift of America. If, in fact, we are so consumed by the things of the world that we do not have a living relationship with God, we are not changing. No wonder the world is not attracted. When there's not, John says in verse 4, so that your joy may be complete. Are we living in weakness and bitterness and misery and discontentedness? Why would we do that? When we have communion with the Father and the Son, and that involves a partaking of his life. Uh, many years ago, I was a pastor of a different church, so I, I, you can tell more stories of two churches ago. Uh, and I, I had to call an older woman in our church, and, uh, and she was pretty ornery. And actually, before I called her, I kind of braced myself. Uh-oh. You know, I'm, I'm calling so-and-so. And so I, I, this is literally what happened. I called her. I said, uh, how are you? She said, I'm ornery. I was kind of fed up, I think. I said, are you aware that that is not one of the fruits of the Spirit? <laughs> and she said, it's not? I said, no, no, it's not. She says, well, what are the fruit of the Spirit? I said, well, let's open our Bibles and go to Galatians 5. And I went through the fruit of the Spirit. She says, I have none of them, Pastor. And I said, well, let's talk about that rather than the reason I really called you. Why should you be ornery? Why should you be discontented? Look, you, I, I know the answer, because you live because you're hurt, because you live in a world that's not nice to you, because you're overworked, you're overstretched. I, I, I. You have communion with God, and he wants to share with you the life that is in him. Now, we normally will call this sanctification, the process of becoming more holy. But you know, there are times in the Bible where the word that is used for this partaking of the life of God so that righteousness, peace, and joy, faith, hope, and love, gentleness, kindness, patience, contentedness, these things are becoming part of our lives because they're in God and they come to us. There are times when the Bible describes that not as our sanctification, but as our glorification. Think of these wonderful words in 2 Corinthians 3.18, speaking about this partaking of the life that's in God. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In all these ways, communicating these attributes, God is sharing his glory with you. And my friends, when we get to heaven, when all this sin is behind us, when we have been transformed into his image, we're going to say, why did I not pursue these things more earlier? This is glorious to be more and more like God and Christ. Oh, that I had desired it more on earth. Well, let me go to my last point, and I'll try to be brief. We should think of our communion with God as a personal relationship with God. It's also a partaking of the life that's in God. And third, it is a partnership with God. Our fellowship, our koinonia with God is a fellowship with him. Now, it's a partnership with him. That means we share his interests. 
that we, are, we, we know and we care about his plans in the world. You know, John and his brothers had been fishermen. They'd had a little koinonia, the word is used for business enterprises. They were the sons of Zebedee Fishing Company. And they shared a boat and they made plans. They went out fishing. They got the harvest. That's what they did. They were partners. And that's what, that's what it means to have communion with God. We're his business associates. We're, we're, we're in the family business. You, you read those accounts in Luke 2 when Jesus was a boy. And on one occasion, you know, he was in Jerusalem and his parents lost him. And they couldn't find him. They found him at the temple discussing theology with the teachers there. And he said, I must be about my father's business. Well, so should we. We are to be about the father's business. Now that means that Christians should be keenly aware of and interested and invested in and involved in God's purposes in this world. Do you know what God's purposes in this world are? Well, the Great Commission tells us the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ, that a Savior has come to die for our sins and rise from the dead, the, 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 the making of disciples, the building up of the church. This, this is what this era of history exists for. That's what the Great Commission says. And so the church as a whole, you as a whole, should have a zeal for worship. All right, it's Sunday. And we have a guest preacher, so it's going to be a long sermon. And, the, uh, and we get to worship him, and, and we get to share the gospel, and we, get to, oh, and we get to plant churches, and so we're going to sacrifice fellowships that matter to us. Why? So there can be a church where Christ is worshipped and exalted, and people can be brought. And this is what life is about. One thing that should never be said by a Christian is, you know, I have no sense of purpose or meaning in life. You're a partner in the great gospel work of King Jesus. That's what you're doing. We are partnering with God. You know, the same is true in our individual lives. God has a plan for your life. You know what it's called? Holiness. This is God's will for you. Sanctification. It's really glorification. But you should be God's partner in his agenda in his life. Now that means in part that we should be cultivating God's attitudes. The world cares about you know, outward prosperity and success. We're in the world, we care about that. We have our sports teams, we have businesses we're involved with, we have a local elite, it's, it's, it's okay. But you see, we also care about sin and salvation. And we are gripped by these things. You know, Paul in Acts 17, he's visiting Athens. And he's walking towards the Agora, and he sees all these idols. And you see, his attitudes were the attitudes of God. We're, we're told that he had a paroxysm. He had a spiritual heart attack when he saw how... Do, do we feel that way in America, in Grand Rapids? That there's, a, there's the grief of Christ for, for the idolatry of our society? And then for all, yes, for all the depravity around us? But it's not therefore we, we condemn them. No, he went and told them about the God they did not know. We're to have a, a attitudes and affections that come from God. The missionary Henry Martin, he was the great English missionary who went to India to proclaim Jesus Christ. He was one of the groundbreakers, and his life was spent, and it resulted in a small handful of converts. From that small handful of converts are millions of believers in the land of India, and a great people of Jesus Christ, along with other religions there. And what motivated Henry Martin? Well, there was one occasion that he writes that he, he came to a place, in a marketplace, and there was a portrait that showed Muhammad sitting enthroned and Jesus Christ kneeling at his feet. And his response showed that he had communion with God. He said, I could not endure existence if Jesus Christ was not glorified. And the thought that there were people who would, who would take the Lord Jesus and depict him bowing at the feet of Muhammad, so burned in him that he says, I, I, I want to give my life to telling those people that that is the Lord of glory. That is the Savior. There is no other Savior than that person. I could not endure existence if he was not glorified. That is the spirit we need in this generation of the church. The problem today is not the ACLU and other pagan organs. The chief problem is the people of God who are more consumed with the things of the world. And we can endure existence 
when Christ is not glorified. Well, my friends, take up joy in your partnership with God. You don't say, don't, don't, don't ever say, I don't have a purpose or meaning. No, you, you have a place that no one else has. You have gifts. You have relationships that are yours. You have a calling, and you are part of the great missionary endeavor of the reigning Jesus Christ. And here's the great thing about this business enterprise. It's never going to end. And the labor that we do together as a church and individually as Christians is a labor that literally is going to resound in eternity. Uh, my, my wife recently, she's not here so I can talk about it a little bit, but she's had some really great relationships with some young women recently, uh, young moms who are new converts, and she meets with them uh, weekly for prayer, and she teaches a women's Bible study about how to do Christian womanhood. And, and she and I were praying about this, and I said, honey, do you realize that what God has given you to do in this wonderful opportunity is going to resound for generations? Your neighbor comes to know about the Lord Jesus Christ, begins living for him, it becomes a Christian home. I mean, the great-grandchildren are going to be talking about that. But you see, it's going to go beyond, it's going to resound in eternity. And we look forward, you see, it's all with an aim to that great day when Jesus comes. And I pray that you, as a partner of God, in the work of the gospel, that you anticipate that great event that is coming when the Lord returns, and oh, may he say this of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, the desire of that should burn in our hearts. Well, let me run towards an end here. I've been talking about God the Father, but John says our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son. And I want to say to you, do not think that you can have communion with God until you have had personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until we are washed of our sins, Jesus is the one who washes us of our sins. Until he has reconciled us to the Father through his blood, through a personal faith relationship in Jesus, you will have no communion with God. But you see, Jesus himself wants to fellowship with you. You think of that great statement in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. That was not an evangelistic statement. He was not talking to unbelievers. That was Jesus' desire to commune with you. John Owen writes, Only Christ can satisfy the soul. All other ways and things only end in disappointment. Well, Paul said, I suffer loss that I may know him that I might have fellowship in his sufferings, that I might partake of his resurrection life. Only Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Through him, says Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father by one spirit. And Owen writes, as we come to the Father's love through Christ, so the Father's love comes to us through Christ. And so our fellowship with Christ is with his Father. And there's this great statement in John 20. Jesus has just come out of the open tomb, and Mary Magdalene meets him in the garden. It's got all kinds of significance. He's, the, he's, he's a new Adam and resurrected in the garden. And she, she doesn't want him to leave, and she tries to hold, lay hold of Jesus. And he says to her, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, notice what Jesus was saying. He says, that great fellowship that I and the Father and the Spirit have enjoyed eternally, that perfect communion of love in the Trinity, you're not part of that. It's not just that you have a relationship with the Father like my relationship. You have my relationship. You now are part, and that love that is shared within the community of the Trinity now becomes the community of the church. We fellowship through the Son, but also with the Son and the Father. Well, let me give the obvious application. Let's seek and enjoy our communion with God. Let's do that. You say, I want joy. Don't pursue joy. Pursue God. I want peace. Don't pursue peace. That's what the world does. The world pursues happiness. They don't find it because they make an idol of it. Don't make idols of peace and success. Pursue God, and you will have all things in him. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And you see, here we find the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it says much about our generation that we go, what, is that, what does that second part mean? I know what it means to glorify him. What does it mean to enjoy God forever? That is a very telling statement. The answer is communion with God. That we would enjoy life together with God. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now, I I have teenage children who like to tease me from my sermons. And uh, one of the things they like to say is, Dad, we know that when you get to the conclusion of your sermon and your application, we know that 90% of the times you're going to say something like this, Bible and prayer. Amen. Yes, I am. These are our resources. The Word of God. Oh, live with God through the Word. Prayer. Let's recommit ourselves. So communion with God in prayer, yes, communion with God begins with the Bible and prayer, but it does not end there. It is our privilege to walk with God in all of life, as did the great figures of the Bible. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and the Lord so loved his company, he translated him without even dying straight into heaven. And my friends, someday we are going to be there. We're going to be with God and with Christ and with Enoch and Abraham, the friend of God, and with Moses and with my deceased beloved parents. But now we have communion with God the Father and Son. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Well, here is the answer to the great problem of loneliness and purposelessness that stalks the human heart. And Jesus says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And if we will love the Lord, if you will love the Lord, I I think there's probably very many people here who what you really need to do to profit from this sermon is to go back and say, how do I enter that into my life? If that is true, and it is true, husbands and wives should talk about, what about our family? Where's the relationship with God? Where's the priority on communion with God? Where's the part? How are we going to partake of the life of God unless we commune with him? How do we, I hope that you'll make those applications. Because if you will love the Lord, communing with the Father and the Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we then will know in an experiential way the blessing of those ancient words spoken to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid. Be not dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's know the reality of that in communion with God. Father in heaven, we pray now for your blessing on your word. And I said a lot, Lord, but I pray that this clear message would go through, that we have a personal relationship with you, a partaking of your life. We are your partners all through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would we, by faith, by your grace in our lives, lay hold of an experiential Christianity. Let us realize that the kingdom of God is not merely a matter of talk but also of power. May we give a witness of divine power and life with all the fruits of righteousness, peace, and joy. May this be true of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.